ever feel like God is silent when you need Him most? Well, get in line. I think we've all felt that way. Even the Psalms are filled with passages asking God not to hide His face from us. God's silence or hiddenness is a common question, and the answers may surprise you. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Dr. Pat Zuckerin is a Christian scholar, author, speaker, and prominent apologist who speaks all over the world giving reasons for faith in Christ. Recently, Dr. Zuckerin hosted a conference in Hawaii which featured prominent scholars and communicators speaking on today's hot topics. Today you'll hear from Dr. Gary Habermas in the first in a two-part series on the silence of God. And when you get a chance, check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find resources there on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, past shows, interviews, articles, books, and more. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zuckerin presents Dr. Gary Habermas with part one on the silence of God. By far, the two most common questions I hear from believers, silence of God, where is God when I want him, when I really need him, kind of thought, and how to handle emotional doubt. What do you do when it really, really hurts? And those are totally different messages, believe it or not. Now, I'll tell you right up front before I start. I'm not a psychologist, but I'm a person who's interested in emotional states that cause us to sometimes come unraveled. Probably nothing accounts for believers falling away, however you define that, than emotional aspects. I'd say if I had to list three most common things I've seen over 40 years of doing apologetics. Uh, I would say emotional struggles, sin, and peer pressure. Now notice what all of them have in common. Emotional aspects. Notice what none of them have in common. Facts. No matter how rational we think we are, especially you guys, you know, it's kind of a guy thing, right? Your, your patron saint might be, and I'm getting too old, the program's too old to say this, but some of you folks here will remember. If your patron saint is Mr. Spock, live long and prosper, um, you can be in for a rude awakening because I'm German and uh, I was raised in a, in a uh, German household where guys don't express, I mean my folks were very loving, my, my mom is not so much German, and she would always tell my dad to, to get a little more emotional, you know, to uh, let the boys know you feel something for them, you know, like that. My dad would kind of hug us sideways like this. And, uh, I mean, we're very, very close. But, but it was almost like I was taught there was no place for emotion in, in the Christian life. And then you get out there in the world, and sometimes you just get beset by emotional things. Well, it's, it can be dangerous for guys because that's not a rock that men turn over sometimes. My wife's back there. She's got a little saying when she's having a bad day. First time I heard it, I got a real kick out of it. She said, don't worry about me. I'm being emotional, but it's okay. God made me this way. I thought, well, that's an awful easy excuse. It's like, God created me that way. I don't have that. I, you know, I, you know, I can't deal with that. So what happens when you're up against some of these emotional things? Now that's just emotions, and that's really the two messages that I have today are about emotions. But the other two, real quickly, I think peer pressure is huge today. 
When we talk, think about young people going on college campuses, and from surveys, anywhere from 60 to 90% of our young people walk away from their faith. Again, however you define that. They walk away from their faith when they go to secular colleges. Much of it's for peer pressure. You know, over the years, I've, I do a fair amount of debating. I don't like it, but I've done a fair amount of debating. And when, and when you go up against the so-called Christian baiter on this campus, the guy that goes after Christians in the class, you know, very typically, the professor does not give a detailed argument into Christianity. I mean, I know I'm talking about specific cases here. And the professor might do something like this. I'm actually thinking of a case at a very prominent, one of, one of America's top five, probably top three universities. And I'm told that the professor goes into class and goes like this. How many of you are Christians in here? Ten hands go up. We're going to be working on that this semester. Eh, enough said. We're going to work. And then at the end of the semester, how many of you are still Christians? Three hands go up. It says, I blew it. I blew it this semester because some of you are leaving class believers. And other professors do this sort of thing. You believe what? You know, I've heard people believe these things, but I've never met. T- tell me again. You believe what? The, the Bible's the what? <laughs> Word of God? Really? I heard we had people who believe. Really? Man, I'd really like to talk about this, but I have to move on. And you feel really small. That's peer pressure. And after a while, you feel like, you know, pounded on. That's a biggie. And the third one is sin. We don't talk about this a lot today with regard to apologetics. And I was kind of slow coming to this conclusion, because I always thought the answer to emotional doubt is facts. And I'll tell you, facts cure very few emotional ills. So you guys, you know, if that's your answer, we're in trouble. But here's the problem with sin. If you fall into sin and you still want to love God, the general move is to make God in your image. And I love C.S. Lewis on this one. He says, Christians will often start out and say, not, I gave in to peer pressure. No, nobody says that. How about this one? I've been sinning. No, they don't say that. And especially the guys, but really anybody, they don't do this either. I'm a little emotional today. I'm doubting God. No, nobody talks like that. Lewis is right. Here's how we always download doubt. I've been thinking. See, thinking is what you're supposed to do. And Christianity is not everything it's cracked up to be. But what I really mean is, I've been sinning, or I've been a little emotional, or I've been giving in to peer pressure. So you have to kind of notice the languages sometimes. Over the last 30, 40 years, the issue I deal with, the practical issue I deal with the most is emotional doubt. That's my last message today. This one, silence of God, is the most common one I've heard over the last 10 years. This is the most common issue, emotional issue, that puts Christians on the shelves. Let me begin this way. A seminary student came up to me, and he said, a good friend of mine, and as we were leaving class one day, he said, hey, I got engaged last week. And I said, good for you. He said, I've written my fiance a letter every day. And like I said, I knew this guy pretty well, and I said, (laughs) That won't last long. (laughs) 
And he's, well, he had a reason for going here. He's one of the sharpest guys in the class. And he said, okay, but I have a question. How come God never writes us love letters? He kind of set me up for it, you know, telling me he was engaged and wanted this tight relationship with somebody. And how come we don't have that with God? And this is before the shack, where, of course, the main theme of the book is whether the main character got a love letter from God. People want love letters from God. How would you feel if you got a letter in your mailbox with a heavenly postmark? What would it look like? You know, like a little return address with a little golden picture of, I don't know what it would look like, like the Emerald City of Oz or something, only with gold. Yeah, the Bible. Yeah. What would that look like? But here's why this one, this, here's why this issue is a little different from some of the others. People who suffer from this one. And I'll bet you, if we ask for a show of hands here, I'll bet you virtually every Christian at some time suffers from issues regarding A, God's silence, and B, emotional doubt. Two issues today. You know why we suffer from these issues? It's very, it's very, and why we do it in common? Because number one, we're finite. Number two, we're sinners. We're incomplete persons. And so we have flaws. And therefore these things come up that sound like dissonance to us, you know, background noise. And here's why this first one's a little more of an issue. Christians think they have verse support for why God shouldn't be letting them down. And they ask questions like this. I've been praying for this for 20 years, don't you know? And God never answers my prayer. There's one. Here's another one. What about my favorite verses? I memorized these when I was a child and I still remember them. And God has promised to answer before we even ask. Sometimes I'm tempted to think he doesn't care. But see, they claim verse support. And, and the implications are that God's not being true to his word. If you brought your Bible this morning, I hope you did. Let me just send you to two passages here that are very, very interesting. Both the book of Job. The first one's chapter 34. Now let me give you a real fast outline. I'm not going to stay in this book very long. But in your outlines, I don't have a PowerPoint. I, I, um, usually when I give an outline, I don't use PowerPoint. Um, and you've got some notes there that I want to at least bring to your attention about Job. Because the issue of silence comes up. Now, oftentimes, Job, I, I gotta admit, how many of you, Job is your favorite book of the Bible? Alright. Those of you who were here Wednesday night, I gave part of my testimony and I was talking about a, an issue regarding um, dealing with the worst suffering you'll have to face, which is a third issue in this suffering, emotional doubt, and silence. And uh, there was a book on the back table, they're gone, they've been swooped up, but the story of my family when my wife died of cancer. There's a chapter in that book, and it's called Job and Me. I didn't think I suffered as much as Job did, but Job and I became friends during that time. And I went through that book, and I realized there's so much in that book we never read because it's not fun. Or at least we tell ourselves that. And here's about how far we get in Job. Satan asked permission of God, actually twice, to tempt Job. 
he was granted that. And then twice more, in the first three chapters, we're told that Job did not sin by blaming God with these things. And we're told that his wife said, curse God and die. And he's got three friends who did not give very good advice. God got upset with them. At the end, Job was vindicated and he was blessed. That's basically our outline. But sometimes you really have to read chapters 3 to 38. And what happens from 3 through 31, that's the discussion with Job and his friends. And they don't give real good advice, although you know what's kind of scary? Any of us probably could have given the same advice to our friends if they were in trouble. Like, where's your sin, dude? You gotta pray, you got, must confess this, and things like that. Now, it says early that Job didn't sin by tempting God, uh, or by saying things, charging him with evil. But as the chapters go on, he does a very good job. He challenges God to a debate over and over. In fact, many Old Testament scholars think that the setting of Job is a courtroom situation. And Job demands his right to a day in court. He demands his right to plea his case, to prove that he's innocent. That's the setting. And Job says some very strong things about God. Once he says, if you paraphrase it, he basically says to God, get out of my face so I can die like a man. Like, just leave me alone. Sort of like God's absence would be all he's asking for. Just give me a break, just get out of here, and let me die. Leave me alone. That's all I ask. Then a couple other times he kind of gets on his high horse and he says, you know what? I think I can beat you in a debate. I think I can win my day in court. Then once he says, eh, you'd kill me in a debate. So he goes back and forth like somebody who really is painful. Twice, Job says, in all my struggles, you've been silent. In chapter 32, a fourth friend comes on the scene, Elihu. Most commentators think that he, certainly a he of the four friends, speaks for God. But he's sort of the figure that gets Job back on the straight and narrow, starting in chapter 32. Now, with that little background, watch what Elihu says to God. Uh, sorry, says to Job about God in chapter 34, verse 29. If he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can see him? Now, we find the same language in, in Jeremiah and Lamentations and other passages in the Psalms. If God chooses to remain silent, what is that to you? Well, that shows you that believers have, have struggled with silence, you know, for a long time. But it also gives us an answer that we're not really crazy about. It's like, you know, God may just not talk to you. Hang in there. And it's hard to talk, hang in there. Now, let's go back one chapter, chapter 33, and Elihu is speaking. Now, he just got done saying, if God wants to remain silent, what is that to you? But look at 33.14 and following. For God does speak, now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. Whoa, now that's the answer I want to hear. Elihu says, God is active in the world, and he meets our needs, and he reveals himself. But you have to be very careful to look where he's working, because we don't always look where he's working. But I think about the song, looking for love in all the wrong places. I think Christians often look for love in all the wrong places. We look for God to reveal himself, and if he doesn't reveal himself this way, we've never gotten a love letter. 
And love letters come in different forms. Now, I'm not going to pretend to give you an answer that all Christians accept, but I've changed my view on this one years, many years ago. And I used to think, used to take kind of a cessationist view and said God's not active today, and I don't have a clue how I ever took that view. I think I was just taught that. Seriously, I think I was taught that and didn't think through it very critically. But listen to what Elihu says. God does speak. One way, now one way, now another, but you may not perceive it. And he mentions four ways God reveals himself. In a dream. Boy, I don't know what to do with that one. I'll be real honest with you. I'm talking about, you know, today. What would that look like today? Pain. Whoa. <laughs> That's not the kind of love letter I was looking for. No, but God speaks to us through pain. Thirdly, you might hear from an angel. You know why I think we look for love in the wrong places regarding angels? Because I think that if God had sent us one, we'd say, ah, that was strange. It couldn't be that. And you know what? You can ignore anything you want to ignore. You could have seen something. You could have been the recipient of an act of God. And if you don't want to believe it, it's not going to count as a love letter. How would you like to be God and send you love letters and have you not count any of them as love letters? John 12, you think, we're only, you think only 21st century people are like that? Book of John, 12th chapter, God speaks from heaven and the people say this. Some of them say, that was God speaking. And somebody else says, nah, that was an angel. And someone else says, it was thunder. It was thunder. That sounds like a 21st century response, but it's in John 12. It's thunder. That's amazing because I think God speaks to us many times and we're not listening. Not to mention we're looking the wrong way. Not to mention we attribute it to something else. So God could have a tough, a pretty tough job here. I mean, he could do what he wants, but sometimes convincing us, because I believe we're free in a particular sense, I think we can ignore what we want to. The fourth way is prayer that Elihu mentions. Dreams, pain, angels, and prayer. Now you can decide how much of that's for today, and I'm not giving a lecture on that. But I like the contrast to Elihu. Elihu says, hey, listen, if God wants to be quiet, what is that to you? He's God. What do you want to do, give him instructions? Well, yeah, sort of. We'd like to do that sometimes, right? But then Elihu also says, God's active all over the place. You've got to have your eyes open. You've got to be looking. Now, I don't, I don't want to talk about this a lot, but your notes say some particular things. And if I were to lecture on this topic, it's a totally different topic. But if I were to lecture on this topic, well, I, okay, I'll tell you where you can get it. I don't have a book out there yet, but I've got a book that's due out in about a month with Tyndale Press. I don't know if you guys have this experience, but publishers never like my book titles. Yours too? How many book titles have they kept of yours? Zero. Okay. Pat, how many have they kept? One. Okay, I've got something like three dozen books. I think my titles made it twice or three times. You know the only kind of titles that make it? When you do academic books with academic titles, they don't care what your title is because they're not going to sell more than 16 copies anyway. But if they got... If they've got money in books, they're going to use their title. All right, so I named this book on silence. That sounded good to me. Prayer, Suffering, and the Silence of God. Are you kidding me? That doesn't grab people when they're walking by. 
what well, says what I want to say. Yeah, who cares? You're just the author. Here's the title. Why is God ignoring me? And I, I do kind of like, they kind of hooked me on the subtitle. The subtitle is, What to do when God is giving you the silent treatment. I like that. That's provocative. What to do when God's giving you the silent treatment. It's due out in a month. I just say, look for it if you're interested. But I start the book, because it's a very, very important part of this lecture. And I'll say why in a moment. But I start the book with two chapters where I argue that, in my opinion, God is more active in the world today than he's ever been in history. Now, you could say, well, that's because we have more people. Fine. That's because we have multimedia and we can hear about something that happens in Sri Lanka the same day. Okay. But I just think God is very, very active today. I give 12 ways God's active. When people ask me questions about why don't I get love letters, the things they would like fall into two categories, as nearly as I can tell. The first kind are bombastic, really neon sign type events. And I've got six of those categories in the first chapter. And then people who are really hurting have a second question. Well, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt the neon categories. I would just like to get a personal letter. I want a personal indication from God, say, that I'm a child. I've got six more of those. Why am I saying this? Because when I do this lecture, without telling you up front that I think God is very, very active, People come up to me later, and the first question I get is, your lecture sounds very fatalistic, because from now on, the rest of the lecture, I'm going to talk about how we deal with silence. I'm not telling you God's not silent. I think we often struggle with silence. But the most common question I get afterwards is, your view sounds kind of fatalistic. Like, why should I pray? Why should I do this? And I want you to know up front, I really believe God answers prayer in startling or not so startling ways. It's up to him. He heals. And you know what I did for two chapters? I used peer-reviewed, documented data for the six categories. Did you know that there's double-blind prayer experiments that have been performed, even in a secular context? And they've done this in many, many places, many of our top universities. And of all the prayer experiments, many of which are politically correct, and get prayers of all different kinds of ilks. And only, to my knowledge, only two prayer experiments have been very successful. You ready? Both done with biblically-minded Christians. One was written up in a medical journal, and here's the praise in a secular, very reputable medical journal. We charted these prayer requests across 26 categories, prayers for healing. We charted these people across 26 categories, and the people who were prayed for got statistically better. That's the key, because we're not often that precise. We'll say, well, Mary's feeling better this morning. Oh, that's great. And maybe God did a work for her. But this prayer journal says we tra tra trace these people, and the, those who were prayed for got better, statistically better, in 21 out of 26 categories, and here's what the secular prayer journal says, last sentence of the prayer scene. The results of this prayer experiment are consistent with prayer to the Judeo-Christian God. That's in a medical journal. That's interesting. How about healing? What about special kinds of healing? What about high-octane healing? I've got about four cases of, of documented, spontaneous remissions of cancer. 
where the cancer goes in less than 24 hours, documented before and after the going. What do we do with that? Some of you know I'm really interested in near-death experiences. That's one of the categories. Anyway, I, that's not my lecture. I just want you to know I believe God is available in the world. But from this point on, I wanted you to hear that. I wanted you to hear Elihu. Because I don't think, I mean, there's different Christian views on this. But I don't think that Elihu's message has to stop. I think God is still active. All right. But I don't think miracles are God's modus operandi. I don't think that's the normal way he works today. If it were, they wouldn't call them miracles. Miracles are, by definition, less common than normal events. Well, we've run out of time today, but we'll pick it up there next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin as Dr. Gary Habermas continues to offer serious answers when God seems to be silent. And you can get this entire series on the silence of God and more of Dr. Gary Habermas's teaching at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. And by the way, you have the opportunity to support Evidence and Answers financially and prayerfully at our website. You'll help keep this program on the air and online when you purchase our resources or offer your tax-deductible gift. Just click on the Donate button on the front page of evidenceandanswers.org. We really appreciate your support. We think that people all over the world should have the opportunity to hear a clear, intelligent presentation on the truth of the claims of Christ. Just click the Donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.